Uh, we're going to be in Colossians 2 tonight, and as you turn there, uh, just to get your mind going, since your smiles aren't, uh, that's definitely for sure that God hasn't called me to be a comedian, <laughs> is that I'm, I'm recalling a story, and some of you have these things in your home. So this is not an insult if you're a salesman, okay? But we all know that people try to sell us stuff that we don't need. Just this last year, I almost invested in a $4,000 set of pots and pans. And I didn't. So some of you might have the ones for me, and I'm sorry. But they do everything to convince you. You know, they come, and they, of course you get a free dinner out of it, which is the reason why I said yes. And they make it, and then they, they do this taste test with your pots and pans. You know, do you have stainless steel? Do you have... Teflon, you have Calphalon, you all, and they do this, this test with baking soda and water, and then you got to taste the water, and it is nasty, so don't do that. And they try to sell you, and I was that close. But there's other things that are in our house, and I do not even know what they're called anymore. One is an ab machine, and something else, and one is you do your leg like this, and, and uh, some of you remember the, the, the Suzanne Summer Thigh Masters and those types of things. And there's always something out there that people are trying to convince you that you need something else. If you have difficulty sleeping, then the infomercials get you, don't they? And you call 1-800, and all of a sudden you're signed up for the next five years to get this special supplement that's going to make you lose 50 pounds in two days. All of these things. And, and you're starting to think in your mind of the things that you've sillily, I don't know if that's a word, have purchased. Who here has purchased something that you totally did not need because it looked cool? Okay, just so we're all on the same sheet of music because some people like it, but I think Craigslist and, and eBay are some of our vices as well. And as we get into this scripture tonight, as Paul is going to share with this church to watch out for the used car salesman or the used theology salesman or the used philosophy salesman, as he starts to talk about these things. And he's given another church a warning about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 20, verse 28 through 31. And I'll read this to you. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so this is the advice that Paul gives to the Ephesians elders, uh, the, the elders of Ephesus as, as he's departing to be arrested, if you read the rest of Acts. But say, watch out, something's going to happen. And the same thing is contained within this letter to Colossae. Now, Bible quiz time. If I had candy, I'd throw it at you. The city of Colossae is in what modern-day country? Nobody? Anybody? Turkey. Turkey. Yes, you win. Okay, gold star, piece of candy. Turkey. It's in modern-day Turkey. It's on the, the west side, okay, and it's not that far from Ephesus. But this is like no-name town. There was three towns that were together, Heropolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Now, if you've read Laodicea, they're popular for their lukewarm water. Anybody like to drink that? Okay. They had these two springs that came in. One was hot, one was cold. It hit the aqueducts. It ran to their houses. 
yeah, lukewarm water. Heropolis was known for uh, something like textile. Well, Colossae, nothing. I live out in Falcon. So the Springs is known as the hub of everything. You know, down by Fountain, you have Fort Carson, you know. Falcon, we don't even have a post office. It's in Peyton, eight miles away. So Colossae is not a popular city, and it's likely that Paul never even visited there, but people he had taught had went there, and Epaphroditus is one of those. But let's get into this in verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as he gets into this part of his letter that he's written, he's, he's telling him, hey, within me, it's like crazy. You know, there's a fight going on. There's a conflict. I wish I was there. I'm not there. There's some people in there that are ripping you off about who God is, and I can't be there. Some of you know who I am. Hey, make sure you tell the guys that haven't seen my face. But here's my heart for the church. That you guys stick together in love. Regardless of what's happening, you guys stick together in love. And not only that, the reason why is that you can progress in understanding what the true riches of full assurance and understanding of who Christ is of who the Father is. And these things is, is what's going to solidify you, is that this knowledge of the mystery, and he talked about this in, in Colossians chapter 1, and is Christ revealed of salvation through God's Son. That's what the mystery is. And it, within Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to go and look for the rainbow, and you think you find that cute little leprechaun, there's the pot of gold. It's not there, okay? For some of you that are addicted to Lucky Charms, you're not going to find anything in the bottom of the box, okay? It's in Christ is what he's starting off and saying. And, and he's not the only one that has this same philosophy of unity for the church, which has come from God and, and Christ as well. John 17, verse 20 and 21 say, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through the word. Now, that's just tripping. Do you realize if you have faith in Christ that he was praying for you around 33 AD? He was praying for you before he was crucified. Because he says those that are going to believe. And he continues, says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So part of the unity, the concern for unity that Christ gives is the unity of a church is a testimony to who Christ is. In verse 2 is his key result of this teaching. And so hopefully the same thing tonight is that we will be encouraged by God's written word and the eternal word, Jesus, as we see who he is, that we can comprehend and understand truly our relationship with him that we understand what the mystery of his incarnation and crucifixion and his resurrection and our faith in him of what it actually means, who God is. 
for those of us that are materialists in nature, is that we shift our eyes off the next car and back on to who Jesus is in our life. And he's going to start by presenting existing deceptions that are starting to attack this church, is that they're coming in to talk about these things. In verse 4, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. He says, this is the very first thing I want to say. Hey, pay attention, listen. This is what I'm going to say. I'm doing this so that you're not deceived by somebody that's smooth talking. Hey, have you heard this? Do you really believe that about Jesus? Like resurrected? The guy stabbed him in the side of the spear. It's impossible. Some of you will remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? Right from the beginning, the persuasive words to, to divert us from our faith in Christ have started. Adam and Eve, did God really say that? And so he's warning them about this. And he says, oh, I'm not there in the flesh, in person, yet I'm there with you in spirit. He's concerned about them. And he rejoices at their continuity despite the things that he's going to discuss. Because what does he say? Your order and your steadfastness of faith. So despite these, these accusations that we're going to hear, is they were staying on the course. They were staying on the course. But he still addresses it. The key defense that he gives is in verse 6. And this is also your first therefore. You're going to have four of these tonight. Four therefores. But this first one, he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. For those of you that have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that have placed your faith in him, I want you to remember back that, to that time. I don't want you to remember the people that are around you. I don't want you to remember the lights. If it's here, I don't want you to remember the blue chairs, what day it is. But I want you to remember the condition of your heart. Because in Matthew 18, verse 3 Christ, when he's talking about little kiddos, for some of us, it's the ones that kick our shins. He says, unless you're converted as a little child, you can't enter. And he's speaking that you have to have the faith of a child to enter into this relationship with him. That's the first thing that he wants them to remember. The second thing is how Christ, how Paul presents the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 if you want to turn there. This is the methodology that even Paul would preach Christ. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. Paul wasn't the guy that was selling snake oil. He wasn't the one that was using these elaborate arguments to disprove. In fact, when he went to Mars Hill and he saw it, they ended up the philosophers. They said half of them said, "You're crazy. It's impossible." He didn't use those things, but it was the power of God that came. So that calling them to remember how they had received. And then look at what he says. So, so walk in him. And then he uses a few, few words to describe it. Rooted, built up, and established in the faith. You know, it used to be in the men's pastor, I think we should like keep this as the decor. You know, having lifts around the stage is like cool. You know, I really wanted to teach from that one, but they wouldn't let me over there. It'd be like serious old school because you know what they did before they had sound amplification, right? It's usually the pulpit was up on the side about 20 feet up in the air. And that's where the, the, the pastor gave the message from because they didn't have microphones and all that stuff. But alas, they wouldn't. However, it's a good illustration right now. As extended as that is, and you see how the, the bucket or the basket is over the edge, that far, why isn't it falling over? You think it's rooted, well-established, balanced? I could probably go over there and shake it, and it still wouldn't fall over. I could probably get on top and jump on it, and it still probably wouldn't fall over. And so the, the terms that Paul is using is, is about a building, but it, the picture that we have right there is the security of knowing who Christ is and what he has done is we're not going to fall off the edge of the cliff into unbelief. Because we accepted it by faith. We accepted it because of, the, of the, the Holy Spirit working within our lives. Not because we won something. Not because it was beneficial monetarily. Not because it was beneficial in our status. But because of who he was. Notice that it says established in the faith, but it gives a condition, as you have been taught. For those of you who, like I used to be, putting your Bible under your pillow does not help you learn the Bible when you go to sleep. It really doesn't. You sort of got to read the thing for it to happen. Some of you all kids, I'm sure you try to do that with biology or whatever. Uh, don't ask me questions because I don't know any of that. But there's a, there's a call for us to be taught. Okay. Second gold star of the evening. Are you ready? Okay, let's everybody stretch. What are the three points of our vision statement? Ready, go. Everybody was like so lively talking back to the guest speaker. You know, and I am not even as good as that dude was this weekend. Nobody wants to say anything. So the three points are what? Be, make, send. Be a disciple, make a disciple, send a disciple. Well, disciple brings with that word that you've got to be taught by somebody, right? And that's what Paul is saying. Is this, this didn't happen by osmosis. It just soaked in my brain. But there was structured things that were taught. That was given to them so that they understood. Remember that. He's going to move on to the destructive deception of philosophy and tradition in a more specific manner. So he's warned them. 
about the con artists, and he's called them to remember the truth that they've been taught and how they're continuing in faith, but he gets very specific. In verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Watch out. Beware. Who here, who here recalls the beware of dog signs that are supposed to be on fences or used to? Okay. Who was an ornery kid that would try to jump over the fence, run through the yard, and jump out before the dog got you? Some of us were. It's not a smart thing to do because the danger lies within it. Beware. You know, it's sort of like high voltage sign and you go and grab the power wire. You know, it sort of doesn't make any sense. And he's, he's saying, wake up because this is not for your good. It's going to harm you. It's not for your good. And what does he talk about? Through philosophy and empty deceit. Those two words are tied together. And not by the word and, but it's like deceitful philosophy. It is philosophy that's intentionally designed to, to cut your legs out from under your faith. It's, it's philosophy that's intentionally designed to question everything. Now, what are the first three things that he talks about of how it happens? Tradition of men, basic principles of the world, and then the disqualifier, not according to Christ. So we have Christ on this side, and then on this side we have traditions of men and basic principles of this world. And he's going to talk about this worldly wisdom, but what he does is start to refute it right away. And so I want you to count how many times your relationship with Christ is in here. Because there's, there's the pronoun him, and then you'll have, uh, see, look, I don't know English either. Preposition is in, right? Is with a preposition? Okay, so look at, is with a preposition? Thank you. You heard what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not with persuasive words of wisdom stuff, so I'm sort of like in a good crowd. So look at how many times it says, in him and with him, when we read through this. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and this uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. The first thing that was specific in what was happening at this uh, fellowship of believers, and it still happens today, is they were bringing accusations about, the tr about who Jesus Christ was. Because if you look what if he says, watch out, this is going to happen. Traditions of men, basic principles of the world, it's not according to Christ. And then he goes to elaborate, this is who Jesus is. 
And there's four times we saw. Twice it says in him, twice it says with him. So this isn't just a, a Sunday school lesson of saying this is who Jesus is. Is that if you have faith in Christ, do you understand he's talking to you? He's talking to you. And what does he say? Some of us will say amen, and no school of discipleship, you're not getting extra credit for saying amen. First is that in him all the fullness of God dwells. So what is the accusation that was likely against it? Okay, I'm not going to worry with the $5 words, but there were people that were saying, ah, he was just a man. If he's just a man, he's not, then it means there's no fullness of God, is it? So they were saying he was just a man. Some that put a little bit of stuff in their tea, oh, he was a spirit. He wasn't even a body. He was a spirit. Wasn't even real. Just unbelievable accusations start right away. And Paul says, nope, this is the truth of it, is he's totally God. The next thing, you're complete in him. Now, all of us should say amen, and some of us, it'll be after our spouse elbows us, because we know we haven't reached that point, have we? We have not reached the point of perfection. But when it comes to having an eternal perspective, we're complete. We're complete in him because he's done the work. The next thing, he's the head of all principality and power. People were saying, well, he's, you know, it's sort of like Greek mythology. You know, you got Zeus, he's like the top dog. You know, he throws lightning bolts and all of that stuff. You know, Percy Jackson and all that junk, right? He's like one of those demigods. He's like one of those lesser gods. He's really not all the way God. He's just like partway God. No, it's not. He's the head of every other principality and power. And the only one that can have an answer to that is God. God is overall, he's large and in charge. No other spiritual entities are higher than he is. And then we get to the next part. And guys, don't get nervous. In him you were also circumcised. This is referencing back to a physical act that is totally spiritual in the context. Historically, God gave that tradition, that tradition, remember that word, to Israel, okay? But it was totally symbolic, even back then, because in Deuteronomy 10, 16, what it says is you need to circumcise the stubbornness of your heart. He's not referencing open heart surgery back then. So it was a physical picture of what a spiritual reality is. But for all of us now, is that we have a circumcised heart. And he's going to get into what it is. By, first of all, it's made without hands. Okay, so it's not of man whatsoever. Second is by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. He, that is what it is. Is When there's a relationship with Christ, is there comes a severance with our identity with sin. There comes a severance with our uh, propensity to sin. Because when we talk about being dead and alive, that changes as well. So what happens within our life, what happens within our heart, is there a total freedom? For some there is, yes. For others there is, no. We don't reach sinless perfection as Christ did. But there's a difference, and you'll notice even in your ability to say no. Because there's a segregation. 
We're not talking, and we'll get into it, we're not talking about behavioral modification where you snap a rubber band on your wrist. That's a pursuit of morality. That's not a pursuit of your Savior and what He's done. And then it goes on to to describe this. Buried with Him in baptism. So baptism is tied to this idea of circumcision. And you can also see that in uh, Romans. It says, In which you were also, also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When we cover the, the uh, before we have baptism, is a half an hour before service starts, as we're usually up in the upper room, and Pastor Eric or one of the other pastors will, will talk to everybody that's being baptized and start to explain to them, this is the truth of what baptism is. And he'll go to Romans chapter 6 and, and talk about what that is. In the same way that circumcision was a spiritual picture of the severance of that sinful flesh, baptism as well, but it is a picture of us dying to our flesh. Okay? Who here has kids? Raise your hand. Who here wish you didn't have kids? Don't. Don't raise your hand. Sorry. <laughs> Do you got to teach them how to sin? Anybody give them sin 101 courses? How about the first word you teach them is no, right? First word you teach them is no. Did anybody have to teach their kid no? That sort of like comes automatically. Maybe they learn it from somewhere. I'm not sure. With baptism, though, it identifies us with them in dying to ourself and raised in newness of life. And uh, that's the picture that he's, he's comparing with circumcision and with baptism of those things that are happening and going on. But it goes beyond that. The next part is he's talking about actual death and life. So how can we be dead right now if we have faith in Christ? What's that popular zombie show called? What is this? Like Church of the Walking Dead? Yeah, we are. Because the life within us is not in and of ourselves, but the life that's in us is because of Christ's resurrection. Okay? He's saying that you're dead. And you've been raised together with him. Now our reality one day is hopefully rapture comes, we're taken off. We get that transformed, eternal, perfect, sinless body, the same as Christ. For some of us that'll that'll kick a couple of buckets and, and get buried, that's gonna be super cool because they rise, the dead in Christ rise first. Just think about that. Just think about it. What about somebody that's been buried like 500 years? All of a sudden, you see the dust and the atoms come out of the earth and it forms into a body and then the spirit inhabits it as it continues to be joined with Christ. That would be a cool movie. (laughs) So I need a few producers. No. It's for us to start to imagine some of these things because I think we do act like zombies sometimes. Yes, I'm a Christian. And our arm falls off. You know, something like that. But to be raised with him. To be made alive with him. He says this to the church at Ephesus as well in Ephesians chapter 2. 
verse 4, that we that are dead, he's made alive with him. And look at what has happened, having forgiven you all trespasses. We could stop right there, and I'm happy to go home because we forget that too often, especially if we get the Eeyore complex. Woe is me. Woe is me. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And then what did he do? He took the handwriting of requirements, nailed them to the tree. And that's, that handwriting of requirements doesn't really transliterate very well for us. It's a certificate of debt. Okay? If you got a mortgage, you know what that is. <laughs> a certificate of debt. So he just took that and took care of it. Our certificate of debt is to God because of the activity and the actions that we've, we, have, we have done in rebellion to Him. And Christ paid for it. What else did He do? He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That is very visual. And some of you have been parts of whether it's an Easter service or some other youth event where they had a nice 6 by 6 or 4 by 4 cross up there. And you wrote down what you hadn't confessed, and you confessed it right there, and you took it up, and with your own hands, you drove it into the cross, a piece of paper. But I want you to picture, and the closest picture that we have is the passion made by Mel Gibson. Do you know he appeared in that movie? This was the only thing of his that appeared in the movie. When they were simulating... uh, Nailing Jim Cavazil to the cross, those were Mel Gibson's hands. It brings a little bit of gravity to our rebellion and sin, doesn't it? To think about that. But he took it out of the way. And then the last one, having disarmed the principalities and powers. How did he do that? He didn't do the touchdown dance in hell and say, I won to Satan. But when he rose from the dead, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has lost its sting. For those that have faith in Christ, you know, it's like that bad MC Hammer song. Can't touch this. Okay. Bad, bad song. You can't. They They have nothing on you. But yet, how often do we find ourselves fearing death? Instead of saying, woohoo, I win. I beat you. He did all of those things for us. And Paul is calling them to remember all those things. When they start to talk smack about who Jesus Christ was, you need to remember, how did you accept him? By faith, not with words of wisdom, because some stupid guy with a funny beard and a plaid shirt said something. It was the power of the Spirit that spoke to, our, to my heart. He is God. He has died for my sins. He's wiped it all out. I'm complete in Him. I'm going to be with Him. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I don't have to worry about the second death of spiritual death, separation from God. I'm going to be with Him because of what Jesus has done. Those things, the things about Jesus is what should put the smile on our face. We get to our second therefore. So, it's the same word as therefore. So your Greek geek moment is therefore is un. Can you say un? Un, O-U-N. 
So now you learned a foreign language in church. That's cool. It means therefore. Some people will write it as then. Some people write it as so. If you got NASB, it says therefore in all four places that I talk about. If you got some of the other ones, you'll see like New King James says so and then. But it all means the same thing. Because of these things, because of what I've just told you about who Christ is, that you, you're raised with him, that you're not dead, uh, that he's paid for all of your sin, he's, he's taken away the handwriting of requirements. Let no one judge you. Let no one judge you. Now, does anybody know the most popular verse that unbelievers know is? Don't judge lest you're judged, lest you be judged. Matthew 7, 1. It's not John 3, 16. So it's only Christians at the football stadium with that <laughs> instead of at church. But what does he say? Don't let them judge you in what? Food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. He says these things, these are the things that are creeping in that people are judging the church there at Colossae. In Romans 14, 3, gives us a key thing, and I encourage you to read all of Romans 14. But what 14.3 says specifically about food, it says, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Now, I have a problem with this. Like, if you come talk to me, and you got Del Taco, and you're eating it, I sort of, I try not to judge you, but I'm like, where's mine? No, but if there's these, these things, is that if you choose not to eat certain things, then that's fine, okay? I don't like GMO corn, so I don't eat it. If you want to eat it, go ahead. You'll beat me to heaven. Awesome. So there's other things I get, okay? We shouldn't, there shouldn't be an argument over food. There shouldn't be an argument over some of these things. And the rest of, of Romans 14 talks about days and sabbaths and these types of things that you don't need to judge one another we got to hurry up i'm talking too long i like to teach the bible that's the problem which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of christ now the word substance most of the time is translated body in the new testament but the body is of christ What's, for those of you that can see, what's right here from this light? Shadow. And yes, I'm substance, but I'm also a body. Is that the truth of who Christ is, is more important than the shadow? Everybody loves Pastor Eric's illustration. I just want to see him act it out one of these days. He's like, when I come home, and my wife comes out to greet me, and it's a sunny day, and her shadow is on the sidewalk. I don't run over and kiss her shadow. Wouldn't that be cool for him to act that out? <laughs> I'm not going to, because I already had enough humiliation tonight. So. But none of us do that. However, if all somebody saw was the shadow, they would anticipate the coming of that person, wouldn't they? So that's all the Old Testament. It's an anticipation of the coming of who Christ is. It's an anticipation and he's got here. He's here. And that's what he's saying. Christ is here. You don't need to worry about those shadows. 18, let no one cheat you, steal you, 
steal your reward. And look at these three things. They take delight, false humility, worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. They take delight in false humility. There was sort of like these guys that didn't like Jesus that sort of did that as well. If you go back and read the first couple of verses of Matthew 6, which you'll remember the Lord's prayers in there, but he says, don't do like the Pharisees do. They had this little trumpet that they would blow, and if they couldn't make it to the temple for prayer time, they'd blow it, they'd, they'd whip out their rug, and everybody would look at them that they were praying in public. They made sure when they gave, they let everybody else know. Hey, is anybody watching me? I'm walking by the offering box. When they fasted, which means no food, they didn't have TVs back then, no food. They got a little of the, the, the charcoal from the fire, the, the, the ash. And, I'm just fasting for the Lord. That's what they did. And that's the same thing that was happening, along with that, the worship of angels. Okay? For those of you that don't know, it doesn't talk anywhere in the Bible about praying to angels. Zero. It doesn't talk anywhere about it. There's one mediator, and it's Jesus Christ. Not these other principalities and powers. Intruding into those things which he has not seen. False prophecy, visions, etc. But the key thing is they're not holding fast to who Christ is. This is an individual that is bringing all the attention on themselves and is doing this with the rest of the church. Now he closes this out in... in uh, verse 20 through chapter 3, verse 4, and he makes a comparison. And that comparison is death and life. And this is your third therefore. If you died, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. His first question that he asks, if you have died with Christ, if you truly placed your faith in Christ, if you are identified with him, why are you making up a laundry list of rules? You think you're going to be more righteous with Christ so that you can be justified in God's eyes? Do you think the cross isn't enough so I need to do something else? He says, why are you, why are you subjecting yourself? Oh, I have to do these rules. I have to do this and then God will accept me. False humility. Neglect of the body. There were those that would, would literally persecute themselves by lack of food or other physical punishment because they thought it made him more acceptable in the Lord's sight. All those things. But the contrast in verses 1 through 4 is what we need to remember. If then, guess what Greek word that is? Un. Same thing. So that's your, third, your last therefore. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not 
on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He asks a rhetorical question. If you're dead, why are you doing these silly things? And he makes a a, a positive statement. Therefore, since you are alive, put your mind on things that are important, which are in heaven. And it should cause in your mind the Lord's prayer, the example that he gave to us. Thy will be done. And he talks about it where? Heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven. Okay? Or on earth as it is in heaven, is what he says. He points to asking God's will to be done. Seeking those things which are above. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, and 13 through 16 talks about this wisdom that is from above. As we seek wisdom from above, we seek wisdom that is heavenly wisdom, spiritual wisdom that has been given to us. We seek his direction in our life. We don't serve these things on this earth because we're dead to them. Does he have things called, uh, does he call us to do things? Yes, he does. Do we have jobs? Yes, we do. All those things. But to have a heavenly perspective on something is a lot bigger. A lot bigger. Because what? We're not here on this dirt ball forever, are we? One of these days, it's going to be like a, a, a young kid's marshmallow at a barbecue. What happens to it? Gone. Gone. So some questions I want you to think about before we transition to communion is as we've went through all of this stuff, have you listened to the whispers of the world to attack your faith? I can, I can give you a laundry list of those that were pastors and Christians. Well, I really don't believe that anymore. I really don't believe that anymore. Another question would be, are you worshiping the shadow and not the person of Christ? Are you, are you worshiping those things which point to him instead of worshiping him? The last one would be, have you left your first love? Just like the church in Ephesus was, was admonished corrected strongly in, in the book of Revelation. Yeah, you do these right things, but you left your first love. The importance of what Jesus Christ has done in our life. Just imagine if we are knit together in love, secure in the foundation of what Christ has done along with learning constantly how deep those riches are how available they are in full assurance. And so tonight as we transition to communion, is this is a shadow. This is a shadow. This, this reflects back to the actual time when Jesus sat or sat around the table or reclined. They didn't have chairs. Around this, this table to celebrate the Passover. And he established this. And he said, what? He took that piece of bread, unleavened bread, and he said, this is my... Now, anybody that doesn't, under, doesn't have spiritual wisdom, we're like, that, that dude's smoking crack. He's sitting there talking to me, but then he says, this is my body. 
What's coming next? The beachfront property in Arizona? He's pointing to it. And then he says, this, this wine, this, this is the blood. This is the blood of the new covenant, which he established. So as you take communion, is, is as we know from 1 Corinthians, is you need to search your heart. Because it talks about taking communion in an unworldly manner. Oh, I'm hungry. Grab a handful of crackers and, and take about five cups of juice. That's what it's talking about. Back in the time it was talking about, you'd have some, that the way that they would do it is, is there were people in the church that were half tanked. I'm not kidding you. There were gluttons and wine bibbers that were in the church that were doing the wrong thing when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And that's when Paul rebuked them. So we make sure we don't approach the table with, with vanity and pride and disgust about what Christ has done, but the truth of what he has really done. As we think about that shadow, the reality is in our life today. I'm complete in him. I'm with him. I'm in him. I'm raised with him. But did you pay for the price? You didn't, did you? That blood of the new covenant went right down that wooden cross for you. That's the cost that he paid to have a relationship. So as I close in prayer, before you come and take communion, is, is not only to examine the sin in your heart, of course, to get rid of the baggage before you, before you come and partake, but I want you to think, do I recognize who Christ is in my life? Am I following him? Father, we come before you and we do thank you for your word because without it, we would definitely be lost. And as we celebrate uh, your son's sacrifice, recognizing the cost, the pain, the suffering of our own personal sins that he nailed to the cross with his flesh, is that we can look forward to joy, with joy of being with you because there is no debt. And I just pray for each and every one that are here, if they don't know truly who Jesus Christ is, is that they would accept it by faith through the power of your spirit and recognize what he's done. That they would repent, turn from their sin, and follow the only one who is just in following. May you continue to minister the truth of your word as we, as we even leave here tonight. We ask for your traveling mercies upon all of us as well. May we never, never forget you, Jesus. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.